Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Early in the book of Genesis, we have one of the most famous falls from grace. Adam and Eve living in this lush garden, trees, plants, greenery everywhere. And then they eat from the tree that's been forbidden to them, and God does not respond gently. As soon as it happens, God tells the snake and Adam and Eve what their punishments will be, and then banishes them from the Garden of Eden, placing angels and an ever-turning fiery sword to guard the entrance to the garden. That is the end of our time in that lush garden. I thought of this as I found myself standing in an almost identical Garden of Eden three weeks ago, a mall parking lot in San Diego. <laughs> but this was not a normal mall parking lot. Sure, if you stood and looked directly at the mall itself, it looked fairly straightforward. A big building, not a lot of windows, parking in all different directions. It was, by all physical description, a mall, except across from the mall, directly to the south, was something else, a 30-foot wall. Metal, dark, imposing, with a secondary, shorter wall on the side closest to the mall, small slats, but not big enough for much to fit through. I stood in the most cognitively dissonant space between the U.S.-Mexico-San Diego-Tijuana border wall and a run-of-the-mill suburban mall. I couldn't quite get my bearings or figure out how to make sense of it. On one side, people were just shopping at Macy's and doing errands, and on the other side, people were desperately seeking a better life for themselves, many severely injured or killed trying to scale that very 30-foot wall. And both existed in the same exact time and the same exact place. There I was with a group of California clergy trying to understand it all. I went on this border delegation with HIAS, an organization we know well in this community, which has been working for over 130 years to help refugees and asylum seekers around the world. Five HIAS staff members accompanied us as we spent four days on both sides of the border, learning as much as we could and bearing witness to what is happening every single day. Near the end of our trip, one of the highest staff who was leading it looked at all of us sitting around at these tables at the end of one of the long days and said to us, you cannot go back home to your communities and just say, it was intense. I don't know what to say. You need to figure out what to say. So today I am attempting to do that, to figure out what to say, to say something to share what I saw and felt and experienced in hopes that it can be heard and received here in this space, that you can also, through these reflections, bear witness to what is happening and what needs to change. The only real crisis at the border is of our own making. An inability by this country to create adequate pathways into the U.S. for people fleeing horrific abuse, trauma, and climate devastation, people in need of safety. We have continued for many decades to make it nearly impossible. We witnessed this up close in an immigration court courtroom located in a detention center in San Diego. This courtroom is deep behind countless security checkpoints and heavy metal doors that lock with a sound that will live on forever in my brain. These doors would only open one at a time. A door would unlatch and slide open slowly, revealing a space our whole group would have to enter. Then that door would close, the next only opening after that. When we finally walked into the tiny courtroom, it was almost empty. 
the judge, two other employees, and two detainees, one of whom was talking with the judge. Joining via Zoom were the prosecutor and the interpreter for this client, who, like most, did not speak English. This was an initial hearing, soon after someone has arrived at the detention center, outlining for them everything they will need to do to try to apply for asylum. We couldn't have phones in the building, so I took notes feverishly on a small pad of paper, so overwhelmed by what was happening. The judge spoke the whole time, interrupted only by the interpretation. Here's just some of what she said. All documents must be translated into English first by someone fluent in both languages. You need a certificate of translation that you will attach to the original form of the document. For your asylum application, you will need proof of identity, who you are, where you're from. You will need evidence of past harm, identity documents, testimony of eyewitnesses, notarized declarations to past harm from someone not in the court, copy of police reports, medical documents, copy of newspaper articles about you or these issues happening in your home country. Any reasonably available evidence must be presented. If not, your case will be denied and you will be removed. Or you will have to explain why it is not available. You have 30 days to do an appeal and 30 days for that appeal to get to the Court of Appeals. If not, this court's decision is final. I could not keep straight everything she was saying and I am a native English speaker. And this is the only way this man would be able to attempt to present his case for asylum. Never mind the fact that he is very likely there because he fled a country in which he was facing certain death having traversed, as most asylum seekers do, three to seven countries on his way to the U.S., having likely experienced, as 44% of asylum seekers do, some sort of torture along the way. A price that still feels worth it for a chance to seek a new life, to fight for something that looks completely different, to believe that something better exists. But look what it takes. Somehow someone is supposed to present all reasonably available evidence. If I'm fleeing for my life, the last thing I'm going to be thinking about is gathering together paperwork to prove who I am or that I am being targeted. In addition to the fact that in many of these countries, the police are deeply corrupt and part of the problem, so no one would be file a police report anyway. And then notarized eyewitness accounts, none of these things are reasonably available. Many asylum applications end up being 300 pages long if asylum seekers are lucky enough to end up working with a lawyer. Without an attorney, only 3% of asylum seekers will actually be granted asylum. And you can see why. How can anyone navigate this Byzantine process in a language they don't speak? We have made it impossible to enter this country for people who desperately need safety, and that's the point of the laws that we have created. The new process created last year, as many of you know, requires asylum seekers to schedule an appointment through an app. There are limited numbers of appointments every day, and they're nearly unattainable. So people wait in shelters, two of which we visited in Tijuana, and they get impatient. They want movement. They've, many of them have spent six, eight, ten months on the road from their home countries. As we were reminded over and over again on our trip, when you are fearing for your life, every single day, the thing that will motivate you is hope, not more fear. All the deterrence tactics from the U.S. government are not successful because people want hope, 
even if it's a 1% chance at a better life. A 1% chance that will likely lead them to going with a coyote or other smugglers, but a chance they will take anyway. A 1% chance that often leads people all the way to that same 30-foot border wall. The one we stood next to in a mall parking lot three weeks ago, as we stood shielded by this slatted metal from the desperation and fear and uncertainty and striving and hope just on the other side. This is a moral issue of today. And yet the conversation has shifted to a politicized narrative in which it's acceptable to exclude people from entering this country who are fleeing horrible violence, poverty, and climate devastation. Leading up to, of course, this week's completely partisan impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary in a way that was only designed to score political points, which, of course, does nothing to address the human catastrophe. What we need is a broader moral call. We are all implicated in the current policies. These things are being done in our name. The impossibility of entering this country, it's on all of us. If we get complacent in the public conversation about immigration, we are not living out our values. And that is true regardless of who is in power, regardless of who is in control of the White House or of Congress. We need to act in line with our values. As always, the Parsha offers us some wisdom about how to do that. This week's Parsha, Truma, as we heard earlier, includes the building of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and much of it is just building specifications use these materials, measure them this way, put them together in this order. And then they're told when they're building the ark that they need to make two kruvim, two cherubs, that will be on top of the ark of the covenant in which the tablets will live. But these kruvim, these angels, these cherubs should not be added separately. They should be hammered out of the same piece of gold of the ark itself so that it's all in one piece. And it will not be complete until these are on top. They will be placed at each end of the cover and their wings will be porcelamala. They will be spread above toward the sky and those wings will shield the cover of the ark and they will face each other. These will be beings of protection. Their wings outstretched to the sky protecting everyone and everything beneath. And they will face each other across this expanse. They will be in relationship. They will see each other. They will understand each other. Only then will the ark be complete. And only then, we're told, will God appear between these kruvim, the kruvim creating space for the divine. As it turns out, we have seen these same cherubs, these same kruvim earlier, just once before, all the way back in chapter three of Genesis, in that story I told at the beginning. After Adam and Eve have taken fruit from the tree and God has spoken with them about their failure, when God banishes them from the Garden of Eden, it says, God stationed east of the Garden of Eden, Kruvim, these same angels. The angels I mentioned that were outside the garden, the ones that guarded the entrance, those were the Kruvim. The Kruvim and a fiery, ever-turning ever sword. Rashi tells us here that these kruvim, these cherubs in this context were actually angels of destruction. The only other kind of kruvim we see in all the Torah, kruvim of destruction. And then in this week's Parsha, we get something else. 
cruvim of protection. In this country, we have relied for too many decades on the model of angels of destruction, perched on the walls and ports of entry and rivers and deserts and mountains of our borders, solely prepared to keep people out, to twirl a fiery sword. But we have not yet found a way to employ cruvim angels of protection, guardians of the walls and ports of entry and rivers and deserts and mountains of our borders who extend a hand, extend empathy and grace and compassion and understanding for what it must be like to have chosen to leave everything you ever knew for a 1% chance at a different life. People are going to keep coming to our borders. People need refuge and safety. We are seeing higher numbers now of asylum seekers than ever in history. And we need to figure out more humane policies that minimize the suffering of asylum seekers who have already survived so much. And we need to demand that the government change policies and laws that are directly impacting our borders. This is not just true nationally. We, as Californians, also have a lot of work to do. We think of ourselves here in California as at, as at the cutting edge, as living out the right values, but we have a long way to go. Just last week, the proposed California budget for next year did not include $150 million of critical funding that have been given to JFS, Jewish Family Services, San Diego, for the last many years. We need to demand that this funding remains in the state budget. We need to make our voices heard. JFS San Diego is the largest rapid response shelter in all of California welcoming 300 people a day by bus who have, by so many miracles, just made it across the border into San Diego. We had the privilege to see the shelter on our trip and the incredible work that they do to connect asylum seekers with their points of contact in the U.S., coordinate air travel, feed and clothe and house them, help them begin their work authorization applications, and then send them on their way, all in 24 to 72 hours. These are the crew beam of protection. These people and places like JFS San Diego, these are the ways forward. We need more funding for them. We need our government to commit its resources to our borders and to the angels on the ground who are already showing us another way. JFS lives out its Jewish values every single day on that border, serving countless people who have arrived traumatized and exhausted with no belongings, making them feel welcome and safe and cared for. And those are the luckiest ones. Those are the ones who found a way somehow to get here, to make it through the labyrinthian process, to file the right paperwork on time, to somehow get an appointment through the app, or some other way to find their way to US soil to attempt to seek asylum. But there are so, so many others hiding, walking, waiting. I go back in my mind to that mall parking lot three weeks ago and I imagine all of us floating up to the top of that imposing 30-foot wall. I imagine us perching up there, wings outstretched, looking down at all the many people risking their lives for a chance at freedom. I imagine us talking to them, understanding their stories, finding a way for them to come in. It is, after all, only after the Kruvim are placed on top of the ark that the divine appears. Shabbat Shalom. Wow.